Hello and welcome to the 2020 International Dublin Literary Award Shortlist Podcast, part of the International Literature Festival Dublin. My name is Jessica Trainer, And I'm Caelan Hogan. In this special podcast series, we will explore each novel in detail as we chat exclusively to the authors shortlisted for the award, the winner of which will be announced on the 22nd of October. For the first time, the winner announcement will take place as part of International Literature Festival Dublin, which, like the award, is sponsored by Dublin City Council. Celebrating 25 years this year, the award is the world's most valuable annual prize for a single work of fiction in English or translated into English, worth €100,000 to the winner or winners. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing The Friend by Sigrid Nunez, published by Virago. And how to sum up this book, Caelan, it is just the most fascinating exploration of friendship, of loss, of grief. And there's a great big dog in it, too. Um, And so the friend of the title, uh, the friend is actually two characters. The friend is a writer mentor who the unnamed narrator, who is herself a writer, loses to suicide at the beginning of the book. Um, He's an older man. He has been involved in some questionable relationships in university settings. He's a bit of a chancer, as we might say. Um, And yet he's a very dear friend of the narrator. Um, And he leaves to the narrator an enormous Great Dane, which she then has to take into her apartment, uh, into her tiny rent controlled apartment in New York City that she can't afford to lose and where there are no dogs allowed. So this is a story of, of grieving, It's how she comes to term with the loss of this friend and with the complex situations and messes he's created in his romantic life, how she kind of deals with the way she feels about him, how she deals with the fact that people will not really allow her the space and time to grieve and how she deals with this great big dog who is traumatised by the loss of his beloved master. Um, It's a book about writing. It's a book about gender politics. um, It's a book about the connections between people and animals. It's quite a slender book. And yet all of these different themes are woven in with such skill. It's an incredibly elusive book. Um, You know, there are quotes by Edna O'Brien. There are quotes by a guy called A.J. Ackerley, who wrote what sounds like a fascinating book about his relationship with his German shepherd. And there are Robert Graves quotes. Uh, It's just one of these really beautifully, richly textured books that you could lose yourself in. Um, And it's a book, I think, that encourages us to try and make a little bit more space in modern life for grieving, for the complexities of friendship. She does not excuse the actions of this mentor in any way. And she kind of skewers him uh, in a delicious way in a number of times where, you know, she's really forthright about his narcissism. And yet she loves him. Um, And I think that's one of the great complexities at the heart of modern life. Um, What do we do with people when they transgress? How do we forgive them? How do we continue to live with them? How do they continue to exist? Um, And it asks all of these questions while being immensely absorbing and entertaining. 
I am a dog lover, but I don't know if I could coexist with a Great Dane in a New York apartment. That's definitely a challenge. But it, it seems like a really interesting yeah, exploration of grief and how we, you know, how we deal with it, how we come to terms with it. And I think the awkwardness of it, too, you know, which seems to be embodied by this giant dog. So I'm going to read an extract. Do I dream about you? Dutifully, I describe it, wading through deep snow, struggling to catch up with someone far ahead, a figure in a dark coat, like a triangular tear in the vast white blanket. I call your name. You spin around, start semaphoring with your arms, but I don't understand. Are you telling me to hurry up or warning me to stop and turn back? Agony of uncertainty. End of dream. Or, I say, for some absurd reason apologetically, at least that's all I remember. I talk about the times I see you. Each time my heart turns over. But why should it be that almost always the person I mistake for you is someone who looks like you not at the age when you died, but at some other stage of your life? Once on campus, I nearly shout for joy at the sight of someone who looks like you when you and I first met. I just think it's so it's so beautifully wrought, this sense of the time lag of grief. You know, that wonderful observation about the person, you know, being at a different stage and age to the age that they died at. Um, and that's especially relevant with this this unnamed friend, the mentor character, who comes to a place where when he realises that he's no longer sexually attractive enough to really engage these young women anymore in relationships, which are consensual, but, you know, probably inappropriate in most of our viewpoints. And um, he's kind of burnt himself out. He collapses in on himself like a like a black hole. You know, there's nothing left. Um, and and she, I think, is responding, the unnamed narrator is responding with fondness to this lost ideal of this wonderful man. And at one point, you know, they're saying when they were students, they all thought he'd, won a Pul- he'd win a Pulitzer someday. And it didn't really happen for him. And there's tragedy in that. There's also the absurdity of his actions, which she does laugh at a lot throughout. But it's just that balancing of, of the sense of, of the complexities and the grey areas, which I think is really, really refreshing. Nobody gets let off the hook. And yet there is a sincerity to it um, and a making space for grief that I just think is quite rare and special. I think it speaks to that grief, not even from a death, but when a relationship changes or if there's a betrayal or, you know, if you confront those difficulties, the grief for what that relationship once was or the person that someone once was and the nostalgia for that and trying to, I guess, you know, kind of bring the two realities together um, and the grief of having to leave one behind. So I'm really interested to listen to you discuss this book. Uh, Let's go to that now. 
Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much, Sigrid. Um, I suppose we were talking a little bit there about uh, public spaces. And um, one of the things that I love about this particular award shortlisting and why I look forward to it every year is that these books are all chosen through the public library system in Europe, across Europe. Um, and for me, what's exciting about that is that they are not necessarily chosen by a, a group of, of judges, um, but by the readers themselves. And it's really, really exciting to see what has been chiming with the readers over the past year. Um, and also it's nice to see books that maybe, I mean, yours is published recently, but some of them are a couple of years old. Um, but it's nice to see how they come together and capture a kind of zeitgeist. And one of the themes that I found running through um, the 10 books in ver to varying degrees is the idea of our connection to the natural world and our connection with animals. And this book, The Friend of Course, has a very um, a wonderful uh, Great Dane at its centre. Um, and can you talk to me a little bit about how the dog arrived? <laughs> well, it, it, it's, it's interesting because I didn't start this book thinking that, uh, that there would be a dog in it because I always, you know, I write blind, basically. You know, I start, I have an idea for a beginning, um, you know, and so then I just start writing something and try to establish a tone or see what kind of tone or voice I've got coming, you know, coming out. And then I begin. And then, you know, if you write something down, you've committed yourself to something. You, you write eyes, whatever. And then you have one character already, the narrator. Well, she, well, she what? It, um, in this case, I started out because I was so struck by the, you know, um, the, the, the news reports about these Cambodian uh, women uh, in California who had been experiencing psychosomatic blindness. Um, and then, you know, I, then I went on and said something like, this is, the, this is the last thing you and I talked about. So I was speaking to somebody, this person who was no longer there. Now, I wrote, and I don't know, maybe it was 30 pages or so, um, and I had there had been a memorial service, and the and the uh, and the third wife of the person uh, whose service it was uh, said, "Do you mind if I call you? I want to talk to you about something." So I arranged that. Then I have the two women sitting together, and I thought, "Well, okay, Sigrid, you brought them together. What uh, what does she want?" And then suddenly I thought, you know, okay, I've always wanted. I'm a big animal lover, and I've always wanted to write a book that had an animal as a central character, not as a narrator, not as a speaking role, but as part of the story, a big part, particularly a dog because of that human canine bond, which is not like any other animal human bond. And then in a, but to be honest, in a rather childish way, I thought, oh, I could put a dog in it. I could <laughs> put a big dog in it. And in a way it was like, as I've said before, it was like, you know, a door opened in my head and it was like, who's a good character? <laughs> And then, you know, I did have in my life a dog that was half Great Dane, half German Shepherd, very big, looked like a Dane. But I, I suddenly wanted, because I knew that what was going to be happening in this book was that the narrator was going to be facing challenges uh, that she didn't choose. It had to be a dog that was going to be quite a bit of trouble. Not you know that the 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 that the good deed that she does was going to have to be something that cost her quite a bit, um, and also rewarded her quite quite a bit. So I thought it should be 
you know, a big dog, a, do a dog that, you know, particularly since she lived in a place where uh, dogs weren't allowed and she couldn't hide it. So the dog really was like a gift from wherever. Uh, it, as I say, I just, it just occurred to me. And, you know, I think it was partly so for the length of writing that book, I had the company of this wonderful doggy. Yes, yes. And I mean, I think what you said there is so interesting because, I mean, Apollo is this wonderful, sad, quite benign, but totally and utterly intransigent presence in the book. You know, the dog is the dog. And it is the narrator's job to try and mould her life around him in a, in a way that I find really, really intriguing. And you do talk a lot about um, about different writing, about relating relating to animals, including J.R. Ackerley's fascinating My Dog Tulip, which I haven't had the time to read myself, but I have been enjoying the Goodreads responses to, um, which is such an interesting, it's always interesting reading those reviews, but the notion that people who are dog lovers love it, but uh, Ackerley's kind of obsession with the dog's bodily functions, for example, is something that really discomforts a lot of modern readers. Um, you know, it, it's it's interesting always to see the psychology of the interplay between the character in the book and the animal, and what they project on the animal, how the animal affects them. Did you enjoy playing with that idea? Very much. I did very much. And um, and what I loved about the Ackerley, which I read uh, many, many years ago for the first time, is that it always stayed with me. And the way he was so open about the, the fact that this dog was, was his wife, you know? I mean, this dog was, this dog was his partner. Um, but, but, you know, he, she changed his life. I mean, just the fact he, he had such a very unsuccessful romantic and sexual life. He was very unhappy in that regard. He'd given up thinking he would ever find a husband. And, uh, and then the dog came into his life and, and everything changed and his happy, all his happiness was, was, was wrapped up in that dog. So he's very open about it as well as about, you know, the physical aspects of the dog's life. But mostly he's an extremely beautiful writer, really a, a, an extraordinary writer. But anyway, yes, I, I just, um, I felt that people, so many people have such close relationships to their pets. Um, and they and the loss of the pets is overwhelming, as it was for for Ackerley, um, who really just started drinking heavily after that, and then became unhappy again and died. Um, but I just I wanted to uh, you know I wanted to really explore that 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 uh, that extraordinary love that that you can feel, particularly for a dog. And uh, and he was a he was a he was a very important influence and model for me because there is really isn't any other book I've ever I've ever ever read that is like uh, my dog Tula. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it and it's really a singular work. And you can see that it does touch a chord with a lot of people again, even in the responses to reading it. <laughs> Um, and I'm so intrigued throughout the book by the contrast between the, you know, the, the friend, obviously, uh, the, the lost friend, the writer friend whose loss kind of gives 
the the book the grief at its heart and um, and also the notion of apollo as the friend as well and um, but there's such a contrast between the two relationships because the narrator's relationship to the, this charismatic writer individual who she loses at the beginning of the book is delightfully complex can you talk a little bit about about that about the relationship between the narrator and that lost friend well that what i was thinking of there um I, 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 you're right. I, it is something, it is something complicated, but it's also very common. I think, um, you know, it's that, you know, it's that sort of thorny issue. Uh, you know, um, some is it is it going to be a lover or a, a partner or or a friend? It's just a very close friend, and um, you know, and this is someone who the narrator uh, meets when she's very young, and he also is very young, but he's ahead of. Her. So he's already teaching while she's still a student, but he's not much older. And he's very charismatic, so he has this, he has groupies of a kind. Um, and everyone adores him and, and, and uh, listens to his every, word, his every word. And, um, you know, if he says, you must read this, everybody goes out and reads it. And then, you know, there is, he, but, but he is one of those people who knows how to use, um, how to use sex to to or or, or any kind, or flirtation even um, in order to hook other people and in this case in order to hook these the women in his life so he does fall in love and he does have relationships and marriages but he also in her case um, they he he was not interested interested in her for for that role though she wasn't him. And that didn't happen, and therefore they. But but they still they had a very tight bond. But they were able to remain friends for decades. Now her good friend, who turned who turned out to be his wife, won, and they married when they were young. Um, says at some point, uh, you know, when to the to the narrator, if only we hadn't fallen in love, if only we hadn't gotten married. Um, if that hadn't happened, you know, as they say, sex ruins everything. <laughs> if that hadn't happened, I could have had him in my life for my whole life, just as you did, and which is what I would have wanted. But because it turned into a sexual relationship, a romantic relationship and a marriage, I lost that. So that was something I wanted to um, to talk about because and to explore because I think that um, I think that it probably happens, and I know that it's happened to me that um, I could have kept certain friendships, you know, all my life if they hadn't become romances, not marriages. I've never been married, but they became romances, and then and then because that seems to be largely the way these things happen, um, the feelings became too strong. And they went from positive to negative or mixed or whatever, but it wasn't really possible to have um, to have a, a, a true and loyal long friendship then. It was spoiled. Um, and, you know, but sometimes it, it also works. I mean, I, I have someone in, in my life now that um, there was a friendship and there was a romance and then it was a bungled whatever you want to call it. And then we we weren't speaking for years and now because we happen to run it into each other <laughs> the the height of the pandemic you know we are we are kind of we are able to be in touch you know uh, you know 
we don't meet, but we, we meet we meet on Skype and so on. And I and I feel the friendship is back, and we do not make any reference to that mess we got ourselves into that we should not have gotten ourselves into because before that mess, we had a friendship of 12 years. And that little whatever, I can't find a word for it, that mess, it's all I can call it is a mess, um, that cost us years of our years. And now perhaps we can have a friendship again. So I, so, so that that was very interesting to me. And I think it really, you know, I, I, I think that that was a, you know, a, a really important part of the story. Yeah, and I think it is a story that really values those those human connections and 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 mourns the loss of them. Um, you know, because there are so few times I think in our lives when we make those really deep uh, connections that that to lose them is always a tragedy. Um, and I love how clear eyed your narrator is in her. Uh, discussions of her feelings around the friend because, you know, she she grieves him so intensely and we feel that throughout the novel. And yet she's absolutely aware of of the, the narcissism that becomes his downfall, I think. And there is a sense of the tragedy of that and how that narcissism, that kind of uh, sexual magnetism that he has that you spoke about, actually pushes him into a place perhaps whereby once he loses that there's nothing but tragedy left for him you know that's all that's open to him but I you know I I think that uh, I think that that's part of the the novel that got kind of kept me thinking a long time and I'd like then to move on to the notion um, of the other great arena that this novel explores which is the writing world and the teaching world um, and and I think one of the fascinating things uh, for me, at any rate, was the notion of how that teaching arena has changed now that it's no longer perhaps an, such an erotically charged area as it might have been in the depiction of this friend as a teacher. Um, and, and how do you feel? Do you think that, that that's a change for the better or, or do you think something has been lost as well? Well, it's definitely a change for the better. I mean, because among other things, it, um, you know, it just, it just, I mean, it was harmful to everybody. Now, when, when I was, um, you know, when I was a student, you know, I, I will say to be, to be honest, I did know, um, I, you know, I did know of, 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 uh, of, well, not just when I was a student, but from the time I was a student, I knew about professors who'd ended up marrying their students and those marriages, some, and those marriages um, were just as good as any other marriages I knew about. Um, and, and it was not uncommon. Um, I did not know about a lot of affairs or, 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 or abuse that was going on, partly because, now this is, this is really significant because I, when I was in college, the idea of sleeping with your professor was was really um, very creepy. Uh, there was that thing you never trust anybody over thirty, and it was the time of the youth quake, and no young woman that I knew wanted to sleep with anyone who was who was not young. I mean, it was that's just the way we were. I mean, I'm sure it went on, but it was really not the thing. Um, so, but but I do think that one of the worst problems with um, with professors sleeping with their students or, or using any kind of seductive power over them 
is, and, and this is something that happened to me though. In fact, I never had an affair with a professor, but there's that confusion that I had that I share with many, many, many women that you're not, you, you, when you know that there's some, some uh, attraction to you or some hope on the, this man's part that he might be able to have a relationship with you, you cannot trust anything that's said about your work. And it throws you into a terrible confusion. Um, well, so did he say that that story was so great and I should send it to the New Yorker because it really is, or, or you know, and then I would discover that the truth was no. It was a, it was flattery. It was, a, it was, a, it was an attempted seduction, and and I think that that's a terrible thing that happens to young women and young men too, to young people when this with with a, with a with it's a, the person who's who's supposed to be the mentor, or at least is the professor, um, does that. I, you know, I I think that that has probably done an enormous amount of harm that we don't even know about. Uh, so, you know, so I think that, uh, that these rules about, which are in the United States are, are quite recent, no romances between students and professors is a really good thing. I think that, um, you know, I don't even know, I, it's not that I would necessarily call it lost because I, I, you know, I'm glad to see it go. I think it had to go. Um, but I, I, I still believe that it, it, it's certainly possible uh, for a consenting adult but young person to 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 have a relationship with a with the professor and have it be a, a, a wonderful enriching thing that should have happened, let's say, for the mm -hmm. two of them. And after all, it's about them. It's not about anybody but them. Um, but I think that the abuses and the excesses and the damage done, uh, you know, you can't say, okay, well, we'll, we'll examine yours. And if yours looks like one of the good kind, mm. then you can have that affair. But if yours looks like it might be, you know, one of the confusing kind that's, you know, so you, you, you can't have two, mm. two standards. So we, we are, we are so by, by far better off uh, where we are. Yeah, and I think that kind of almost the sexual commodification that you're talking about and with their notion of not knowing whether something is flattery or down to attraction or is actual, you know, genuine feedback on the quality of the work. I mean, I think in the novel that you, you, you show how that becomes a cage for, for the friend himself as well, even though he's the person who's engaged in, you know, some very tricky situations and, and potential abuses of power. Um, no, it's it's really fascinating. Um, and and one of the one of the moments that I really enjoyed in the novel was there's a moment where uh, a young student comes to the narrator and says that he writes all of these. He's writing in the fantasy genre and he writes all of these uh, quite graphic scenes, but that he would never share them in class because he'd be thrown out. But then he offers to show them to the narrator. Um, and I, I found that a wonderful moment, um, a quite, quite satirical in a sense, because there was almost a sense that, um, you know, as we're being steered towards the notion of potentially crying censorship, there's also a voice in our head that says, it doesn't sound like this is a great loss to live. 
literature anyway <laughs> if this young man isn't sharing his Game of Thrones rip-off scenes. Um, and I'd love you to talk to me a little bit about some of the, some of the, there's some wonderful black humour in the, throughout the novel around um, writing faculties and getting through and, and working with students. Um, and does some of that come from your own experience a little bit of, of teaching creative writing? It, uh, yes, it does. I mean, I um, I didn't use anything. I mean, you know, I, none of I, I have some student characters in the book, and they are not they're not based on any real students that I had. Um, one or two of the things that I say are either something that I you know heard in class or that some other professor that I know has reported to me. Um, for example, I did I did have a student who who said that. Uh, that in one literature course I was teaching that quite a few of the books uh, were were books that did not sell particularly well or that had gone out of print at some point. The, and now they were New York Review of Books reprints. They were all fantastic books, I assure you. And she said, shouldn't we be reading more successful books <laughs> <laughs> and more, you know, books that, that, that sold better and didn't go out of print? Mm-hmm. Um, she has a point. She has a point. I mean, she's in an MFA writing program, hoping to become a, a um, as she said, you know, I, I want to be a writer who sells a lot of books and doesn't go out of print. So shouldn't we be reading books like that? You know, and I, she has a point. Um, but I, I did, uh, you know, I did. And I, then I invented all these uh, uh, things that could have been said that were very much like what is said. And I, I, I do think that the picture of um, the kinds of things that get said and the attitudes that the students have, um, you know, in writing and literature classes is is very true to to the moment and very true to life. Yes. Yeah. I I think it's interesting. Do you find the atmosphere in, in the creative writing MFA world has changed and become more competitive in recent years? Or has there always been that sense of you know, this is an expensive program and we need to get something out of it. I don't think it's necessarily become more competitive. Um, well, well, it has in the sense that there are many, many more people competing now. But as far as an attitude on the part of the student, I think that probably hasn't changed. I mean, you know, people haven't changed that much. Um but you know, when I was in an MFA program, there weren't that many of them around the country, and uh, you know, you could—they weren't incredibly expensive, as far as I recall. But you also there, there was money available. There still is in certain programs. Mm-hmm. In, in 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 many programs in the United States, the students are are fully funded mm-hmm. or partially funded, and they teach, and you know, they have teaching fellowships and so on. Um, Others charge an enormous amount and some people are willing to pay for that. Uh, but I think, you know, I think that the, there are many differences between um, when I was in an MFA program and now. But the, I would say that the most significant one is that uh, um, back then it would be understood, absolutely understood that one of the main reasons you wanted to be a writer, maybe even the main reason was because you loved books and you were a reader. And now every year, for years now, it is more and more common for us who teach to find that the students do not love to read and, do, and are actually quite irritated that 
in order to get that degree and to take the writing courses, they have to take some literature courses. And in many cases, won't even do the reading. You know, they, 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 you know, they say, I'm not here to read. I don't want to read other people. I want people to read me. This is really very, this is a difficult thing to cope with for a writer. But as I say, years ago, it would have been absolutely unheard of for, a, for an MFA student or any emerging writer, any, any, any hopeful writer to, to say that. That would have been extraordinarily weird. Mm, I know. It's such, a, it's such an interesting dynamic. And I've noticed similar here in Ireland as well, actually, the, the notion that uh, there is a step missing, I think, in most people's conceptions about how one becomes a writer. <laughs> you know, step one, have ideas. Step two should be read a lot. And then step three. Yes. And that is how you become a good writer, by reading yeah. a lot. I mean, yeah. that is true. Yeah, absolutely. And, and have a lot of fun while you're doing it as well. Well, so, you know, I'm sure some so many of the students, once they get their head around it, it opens up a huge many doors for them. Um, I'd love to, to go back to uh, Apollo a little bit and, and the way that animals are are discussed in the book. And I loved your, your reference to, to Robert Graves and his discussion of how the, the, the dead horses at the psalm seemed to be uh, almost not the real tragedy, but the most immediately upsetting thing. Um, and there's this wonderful refrain throughout the book, uh, Sigrid, that, that had me in a, te- a state of terror, which was... <laughs> does something happen to the dog? And I think that was a wonderful way to play on our emotions and uh, and and raise the tension. Um, and why is it, do you think, that people find it so much easier to empathise? Um, this is a terrible generalisation, but I do think it could be true, to empathise with animals rather than people. Well, I think it is true. And I remember the... Um, I remember when I came upon the, the, the graves where he said... Uh, you know that they were that 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 the soldiers were at a certain point where they saw all the uh, dead dead and injured bodies coming through, and then there were uh, horses and other animals, and uh, and how that was the hardest for him. And he said something like, um, "I mean, it's all very well for human beings to have gotten themselves into this mess, but to drag in the animals just seemed, you know, too much." And and I happened to teach that book in one of my classes, and I brought that up. And I'm at the seminar table, and I saw all the students go. You know, they they also they 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 hated that. You know that that that, that the animals were. You know, so so it really is common. And then, what was the other example you gave? I've just oh, forgotten just now. That, there does something happen to the dog, which was right. the question. <laughs> because <laughs> that, cruel. because I know that I know that from um, from from people that they'll say, oh, we want to we want to go to this movie. Uh, does something bad happen to the dog or this book, <laughs> or does something bad happen to the animal? And in fact, there there is a website. I think it, you know, you Google something bad happened to the dog or whatever. And uh, it's a, it's a clearinghouse. If they let you know, if you're planning to go to this movie, um, there's something bad happens to the dog, right? They warn people. I mean, a, a website devoted so that people will know not to go, go there. And then I have a good friend. I regularly send her emails with alert in the subject line and I say don't read the article in the times today about mm, you don't need to read because because uh, she gets really haunted so I've been doing this for years 
I don't always read the article myself, but I always warn her if something, or if you're thinking of going to see this movie, I'll say, don't, you, you, you can't see, you don't want to go there. Um, so, but I think that what it is, um, partly, maybe, maybe largely, is that we, we identify, like, animals are always innocent, you know, I mean, that's how we see them. There's, you know, that's the reality. They don't, they, they are not like human beings. Um, you know, you can say, oh, that pig is evil. <laughs> he planned to do whatever he says. <laughs> or that's a mean lion or whatever. I mean, you know, sometimes we anthropomorphize it. We, we, we do say that's a mean dog or something. But, um, but animals are innocent. And all human beings were also once in an innocent stage up until a certain age, right? And I think that what we we identify with the we identify the the animals with that innocent um, part of our, our our being, and it seems such a violation uh, when you harm the 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 innocent. And I I also I, I say somewhere in the book that I think we all still have this memory of a time when we were completely helpless and innocent and we, but we had some um, instinct that said you know if I just cry loud enough someone will will come I mean we that's you know that's what we that's how we begin life hopefully someone does come often someone does in terrible situations perhaps someone doesn't but um, and I think it's that I think in a way um, the pity that you're feeling, for the animal's pain is for the animal, but it's also it's also for for yourself. You know, you're identifying with that animal in the most helpless and innocent part of yourself. I, I don't. I'm not meaning to say that it's a selfish emotion. It's it's but it's a it's a powerful uh, identity, and it can seem. You know, um, that if somebody is torturing a duck, which is something else I happen to mention, that that can seem like the most barbaric thing in the world, even in the midst of, as this was, of a, a Japanese prison camp where the most atrocious things were happening to people all the time. But the, but, but, but the writer of that memoir that I cite uh, said that it, that was one of his worst memories of that time was a prison guard torturing a duck. Yeah. And that those two examples, the Graves and that, Louis Zampier, that I think that that, that 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 is the reason. I mean, I think it is interesting because I think all empathy has to come from some self-identification. You know, we have to make the journey from would I want it to happen to me to, you know, and I even see with my own, I have a young daughter and I see that process in her, the sense of would I want it to happen to me? And now I can I identify that emotion in somebody else? I and mean, it's a fascinating process. And yes, I think, you know, animals are that kind of prelapsarian version of the self. Um, and we imbue them with all of those those memories of of goodness and good things. Um, but I, I I was intrigued by what you said about the notion of when we when we are young, um, there is the sense that if we cry enough, that somebody will come. And I think one of the other 
themes that you approach so deftly in this is is the idea of suicide and grieving. And I think suicide then is is this great kind of inexplicable loss. It's so very difficult to deal with. Um, and and I think that you deal tremendously sensitively and convincingly with the with the grief and the experience and the process of grief that the narrator goes through um, with Apollo throughout the book. Um, but one of the things that really struck me is how little space is made for the narrator in her life by other people, despite the fact that there are, of course, many understanding people. Um, but one of the reasons I think we grieve with her is that the notion that the grief is over and we should all move on comes so quickly. And do, do you think we make enough space for, for grieving and sorrow and recovery in contemporary life? No, I, I think we very much don't. I, um, you know, first of all, I think that, that uh, the mistake that people make is a kind of one size fits all. You know, I mean, who's to say, you know, grief is different for each person. Um, but usually there's this sort of clinical attitude towards it about the stages that you go through, you know, well, who's to say there's that many stages, maybe there are many more, maybe there are fewer. I mean, why do we look at it like that? Um, but there is, I mean, it's an attempt to be helpful, obviously. Uh, you know, there is this idea that if you don't move on, if you aren't able to move on, you, you'll be in a morbid state. And that, you know, that, that can't, can't be good for you and it could lead to, to all kinds of bad things. But I, I do think that Part of the problem is, is the problem with language. You know, we just, we don't have, you know, our language completely lets us down in these very important moments. I mean, such a, such a, a thing to say, oh, I'm sorry. But we say, I'm sorry a gazillion times a day for all kinds of things. You step on somebody's foot, you say, sorry. So then they say, I'm sorry. And then, you know, this, this catchphrase that we use, I'm sorry for your loss. Every, you know, every person gets, I'm sorry for your loss. Like, you know, um, like have a nice day or something. And then, um, is there anything I can do? But it's never really heard, you know, rarely heard from, from people who aren't close to the situation as being sincere. You're not made to feel that you should bother people with your with your grief, it's your problem, and and it's a it's a difficult thing, and people don't really want to hear about it. So you always have to buck up and move on. And you know, very often there's there's no one to listen to to the fact that you're not able to move on. And then in the case of the animals, um, well, you know, I did after this book came out, and I still do. I get many 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 emails um, about this and. People do talk to me about their grief and how nobody, how they haven't had what they needed to have. And the the worst part for me is that um, that people feel ashamed. They feel ashamed that they're that they're not able to get over it. Um, they're ashamed that they don't want to be distracted. They don't want to forget. They want to wallow in it because they want to feel that loss, because they want to feel that what they've lost was real and that then that the person they lost is still present in some way if they're 
wallowing, but we all know that that's a terrible idea. People say wallow in your grief, what a completely negative thing. Um, and then what I'm hearing a lot is the deep shame that people feel about the grief they feel for losing their animals. They just, they just feel terrible. I, I shouldn't do, I, I, it's been a year and I'm, I still cry. I know it, I shouldn't be doing this. I sh it was just an animal. I shouldn't be acting like it was a person, but I honestly feel like I lost a son. Um, I lost my best friend and they, and they're, you know, it, it, people have very intense feelings and that they really feel they have to hide. They feel like they're going to be seen as like Ackerley or someone. They feel like they're, they're, they're going to be seen as sick, um, abnormal, whatever. So I think it would be nice if, if people were a little bit more open to, uh, what kind of grief people can feel both when they lose a person, of course, but also, you know, when they lose, you know, a, a, another creature who's very important to them. That it's much, that it can be, that it can be incredibly intense. Yeah, and I think that's a real clarion call for our climate crisis age as well, in terms of just allowing our connection to that natural world and allowing that, um, the value that we privately ascribe it. Um, and I think if we could if we could kind of change the, the rhetoric around that publicly, it might actually be a really positive thing for people. Um, because, yes, it is, you know, people people love their animals and their pets. Um, and, you know, I've, we've we've had a cat for almost 14 years. And if she were when she goes, I mean, that presence in our in our home will be so missed, you know, it, and, and will be irreplaceable. Um, and will and will always in my mind connect to a certain time in my life. There will be an era in my life which will be solely defined by the presence and then the non-presence of this pet. And and you're right, it is the kind of thing that people feel embarrassed to speak about, um, which I think is a real shame. Um, but yeah, I'm so glad that people have, have found that connection in this book because I think it's really beautifully wrought. Um, I'd love to chat a little bit about, you know, I, I, I got so lost and had such a wonderful time in all of the various literary allusions in this book. Um, I mean, it's just it's it's so absorbing and immersive and wonderful. Um, but I was delighted to see our own Edna O'Brien mentioned twice in the book. Um, <laughs> once her wonderful, witty um, characterization of women writers as having a double dose of masochism. But then also in her very Edna O'Brien way, talking about the writing as a vocation. And I love everything that Edna O'Brien says, of course, is loaded with that Irish Catholic sensibility of vocation. But I'd love you to talk a little bit about your sense of, of the write, writing as a vocational kind of thing. Well, I, you know, I have to say I really adore Edna O'Brien. I mean, I've, I've been reading her work since I, uh, you know, since since I started reading seriously. And. I'm glad that she has such a, a, a powerful presence and following here. Um, you know, I think everyone I know, I mean, everyone I know is, is an Edna O'Brien fan. And, and her, um, her idea, I mean, I think that those, uh, most of those quotes have come from her Paris Review interview, which is terrific. And I think it's, it was in the seventies and she was kind of bemoaning then um, you know, this kind of thing that I'm talking about, about people not loving to read anymore. Somewhere she says, uh, you know, people wouldn't have the 
the patience that uh, Flaubert would have in creating a work. I mean, she was really seeing it all going away. Um, and, you know, it isn't, it isn't as if uh, it's, it's a vocation in the sense of it's something that never becomes commercial, because I'm really happy to say Edna O'Brien is a, you know, very successful writer. Um, but just this idea that you, that you treat it as something, you know, you treat it with great seriousness. And she also says as, as something that, you know, she also com compares it to an, a writer, to an athlete, you know, something that you work on and practice every day. Um, and I, I, I feel that, that her attitude was, of course, very similar to uh, Susan Sontag's. And Susan Sontag is somebody that I knew as a mentor when I was in my 20s, also a huge fan of Edna O'Brien. Um, and she was, she, she was, you know, very, very, uh, very emphatic about that too. You know, uh, you want to write, you haven't published anything, you haven't even written anything good as far as I'm concerned, she would say to me, but, uh, yet, but, um, you know, you have to take your work absolutely seriously as something you would make sacrifices for Think You have to think of it as a vocation rather than as a, as a profession um, or a job. And so, I mean, it, it, it's just, uh, I, I think, you know, I mean, I think that that is how serious writers think. And therefore, when they're engaged in it, um, it's a kind of practice that aside from publication and, and, and money and anything else that might come from, from it, you're doing it for some other reason. You're doing it because it is your practice. It gives you, you know, you do you do it because you, um, when you're doing it, it feels like it's what you should be doing. Um, for somebody like Virginia Woolf, who also felt this way, it was, you know, sh she thought of it as, as, as being like a religion. Um, so I don't, you know, I, and it's not, um, it, it, you know, now, although there are still, young writers who feel this way, maybe they wouldn't feel all that comfortable talking about it. Um, but it, uh, it, I think it was, it was really much more accepted earlier. And Edna O'Brien, for example, says nowadays, and she's talking in the, in the, in the seventies, you know, everyone writes novels, you know, she says, all oh, journalists write novels, you know, many people write novels. It's not, it's not, um, you know, this, this special thing requiring a special uh, at attitude um, or special beliefs. And she bemoaned that. Um, so I don't know, I, I don't, I, you know, I, I feel like there, I, I also still feel like there is something, you know, a little old fashioned about it. I mean, you know, they, when, I, when I think about Rilke's idea, which is not, would not be at all acceptable to, um, to, to, to most, students I know, um, that, that the question you have to ask yourself is, you know, if I couldn't write, would I die? You know, um, you know this is a very romantic idea, it, you know, that could lead to writer's block. <laughs> so I would never encourage um, 
that attitude in my students. I, you know, so, you know, there's a fine line. I do want them to take it very seriously, but I, 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 I think that there's a, you know, that I, I understand why they, they would mock that idea of Rilke's and find it more as something that was more likely to exclude them. You know, okay, so, so if I can't, you know, well, what if I am this young woman who's a single mother and I have two children and I'm just hanging on here, but I have an idea for a novel and I think it will work. Well, well, well should we discourage her because she can't make it her vocation? because it has to be something she does and she catches a free hour on Sunday morning or something. So I think you have to be careful with this idea, though I do, you know, I do, uh, I, I, I do revere the way Edna O'Brien expressed it and, I, and, and Susan Sontag and, of course, Virginia Woolf. Yeah. But I think there's something liberating in it as well, because I think nowadays we can also get so caught up in the notion of inherent talent because, you know, in the media and social media, you know, the notion of the prodigy is kind of peddled again and again and again, which can create the impression that if you need to work at it, then you shouldn't be doing it, you know. So I think back to the kind of the vocational, the craft, um, you know, for, for somebody like me, the notion that, you will get better if you work at it has always been something I, I cling to, you know, um, much, much like I have to work at many other things in my life and they, they don't just happen. Um, so, yes, I think we can find a, a balance between the Rilke and the, the O'Brien philosophies that will be useful to many people. Um Sigrid, this has been such a delight of a chat. Thank you so much. I think we could go on for another hour, but um, I would love to to finish with a little bit of a conversation about uh, libraries in general, because, again, due to the nature of this award coming through readers and public libraries, um, I've been interested to ask people how they feel that they um, have been shaped as readers and writers by their engagement with libraries throughout their lives. Well, in my case, um, you know, the, the library was absolutely uh, critical. Now, where, where I, I was the, where I grew up, you know, I grew up in a housing project and um, uh, my, my, my parents were, were both immigrants. I had a, my Chinese Panamanian father and my German mother um, barely had a language in common. Uh, it was English, but you know, it, 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 they, they, they did not have, uh, my father never really learned uh, to speak English well. We didn't, we did not, have, neither one of them had been to college. Um, we did not have uh, many books in the house. And, um, and my mother was, but my mother was a reader and she did, she did love reading, uh, her whole life. And she did, she did, um, she did instill in me a love for, for books. But, um, as I said, there weren't a lot of books in the house and, um, but we did have uh, a library at school, which is extremely important. And during the summers, we had a little, um, mobile library. And I remember exactly where it parked at the edge of the projects and how much that meant. And, and I remember going there and getting the red book of fairy tales, the blue book of fairy tales, <laughs> the green book of fairy tales, you know, and, and um, you know, and, and that would be my, my summer reading. And then um, when I was a little bit older and I could take the bus, my sisters and I, we would make our regular trips to the St. George Library in Staten Island um, 
you know, I mean, we just knew that that's, that was where to go. I mean, there was school as well, but, the, and there was a lot library at school. Surely there were books, but it, it wasn't enough. The library was where it was, where it, it was at. And then we'd go there. I remember, I guess we'd go on, on a Saturday because it was not a school day. I remember that. I remember discovering books there and taking them, them home. And then a little bit older, you know, if you, live, if you grow up on Staten Island as I did, you have to take the ferry to get into Manhattan. So we're a little bit older. And then our Saturdays were going to take the ferry to go to Midtown Manhattan to go to the Dunmill Library. So, you know, it's like, you it, 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 you know, when I think about that, how, how that was always there. I mean, well, why didn't we just keep going to the St. George Library? Because it wasn't, it wasn't enough. And so that was a regular thing for us. And so then that was a library, you know, and then I, and then it was time to, um, you know, to, 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 to go to college. And so, 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 you know, where, where there was the college library, but the public library system here uh, was absolutely essential to my formation as a reader and a writer I mean it, there, it was really it was it, it, a really you know it, it's interesting because my as I say my mother really was a, a big reader but but she it wasn't the kind of books that would you know that 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 would have made my literary education and that, well there wasn't you know there wasn't there weren't enough books in the house um, you know I needed the library and, and and that's what we used I mean we bought some books but it was really about the library. Absolutely. And then I live near library here, which I have used a great deal too. And it is one of the lovely things I think about libraries as well is that they are quite um, neutral spaces in the sense that you can go in. There's no sense of this is what you should read. This is what you shouldn't read. It's presented there. And I think especially when you're younger and especially in that difficult time when you're transitioning from children's literature into adult literature, it's wonderful to have that freedom um, and that lack of preconceptions around what it is you should be reading. I think they're wonderful democratic spaces like that. Well, and indeed also there's a kind of, you know, sacred space about it. You know, we have here in the New York Public Library, I suppose it's not open right now, not yet because of the pandemic, but we have the Rose Room at the top of the New York Public Library. It was one of the most beautiful spaces in, in Manhattan. Um, and, and I have spent time there, you know, um, not taking books out, but I have worked there at one of the many desks there. I mean, a lot of people are very... Um, you know it's a very beloved place of a lot of people and I can't wait to to get back it was under renovation for a long time so it was closed but yes that's a that that might be one of the most beautiful library spots in in the world yes we have similarly in Dublin we have the the National Library on Kildare Street in the middle of of the town which was mentioned in Portrait of the Artist of a Young Man uh, by Joyce and again similarly it has this beautiful unchanged since that time space where you can go and work and um, I hope maybe you'll come to visit us in Dublin at some stage Sigrid so that we can oh, show I it to you so love that. <laughs> be wonderful I, I think it's nice <laughs> yeah. to it's nice to make these plans now as to have something to look forward to to in the in the uncertainties of the coming years so but look I'd just like to thank you again so much for for talking to us it's just been a, a fascinating conversation thank you for listening and be sure to tune in to the other episodes as we count down to the 2020 International Dublin Literary Award winner announcement wherever you're listening from we invite you to join us for the online awards ceremony broadcast from the Guinness Storehouse in Dublin on the 22nd of October 
at 11 a.m. Irish Standard Time. You can book your free ticket at www.ilfdublin.com and browse the other fantastic events in this year's International Literature Festival Dublin programme.